There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode two of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. For our second episode, I spoke with Dr. Linda Birnbaum, who recently retired from her position as the director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the National Toxicology Program. At times referred to as a rock star in the science world, Dr. Birnbaum had an illustrious 40-year career as a scientist and program director at NAHS NTP and the Environmental Protection Agency, conducting groundbreaking research on some of the most important and prevalent toxic chemicals, including PCBs, dioxins, brominated flame retardants, and PFAS. In describing her life and career, Dr. Birnbaum's lifelong love of science, collaboration, teaching, and family all shined through, and it was an honor to speak with her. Here's my interview with Dr. Linda Birnbaum, recorded in February. So just starting out basically at the beginning, say, you know, talk about where you're from and, and your, you know, your background, your childhood. So I'm Linda Birnbaum. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, northern New Jersey, which when I was a kid, I thought was kind of the country compared to family that I had living in New York City. When I go back now to where I grew up, I realized, no, it wasn't the country. But I had great education in suburban New York schools. I had parents who were incredibly understanding because they allowed me to do a science project when I was in ninth grade, um, where I had uh, 40 rats in my basement. And I was looking at the impact of uh, thyroid disrupting chemicals. Of course, that isn't what we called them then, um, on the growth of these rats. That that kind of reinforced for me my interest in science because I actually won the New Jersey State Science Fair and was sent to Chicago to the Youth Conference on the Atom. And I can't remember now if that was the first or the second Youth Conference on the Atom, but it was pretty early. And for me, it was really exciting because it was the first time I'd ever been on an airplane to go there and, and meeting different Nobel laureates and, you know, emerging scientists from across the country was pretty reinforcing. This is your ninth or 10th grade at that point? Uh, I was I was actually featured in Life magazine in December of 61. Okay. So I um, I have to go back. I was probably in ninth, ninth grade at the time. Hmm. I think so. Maybe 10th by then. I was 10th grade by then, but the project was when I was in ninth grade. I enjoyed science because I was good at it, I guess. And it was also fun to be the only girl in many of the classes. I liked that too. And that was just re- reality. Uh, and every time, like when I went to college, I would, you know, intended to major in biology. And every time I'd get frustrated, I'd be taking anthropology or history or English or something, and I'd have to write a paper. And I'd go running back to the lab for refuge because 
that was, I, I enjoyed all the lab work. And I guess it was only later did I learn that as a scientist, writing is still your method of communication and is basically what you get known for, what you've written. So that was, I learned that, but it was very different writing a lab report than it was writing a spontaneous essay or something on, on a topic. So I, I did very well in biology. Um, I, I met my husband when we in summer camp, and we were married three weeks after we graduated college. And I graduated college in three years because I knew once we were married, I'd be on my own um, financially. So we both wanted to go to grad school. He's a mathematician. And we applied to, I believe it was six different universities and went to the one where we both got in and got the most money. So it was a very scientific determination of where to go. And it, it was economics and it was, you know, you know, I got into some that he didn't, he got into some that I didn't. So it was the ones that, that we matched. So we went to the University of Illinois in uh, Champaign-Urbana. Um, it was the first time I'd ever really been, well, I guess I'd been to Chicago for this youth conference on the Adam, but it was the first time I'd ever really been west of, say, Pennsylvania. Um, and I had no, couldn't believe that it took us 18 hours to drive at that point in time to central Illinois. And it kind of opened my eyes to the size of the country because I had that Easterner's vision of what the country looked like. I mean, you had the East Coast and then you had Chicago and then you had Denver and then you had San Francisco and LA. I mean, what else was there, right? <laughs> Anyhow, so I actually, um, my, my PhD says microbiology, but I, I'm a microbiologist who took one course, course and taught one course. Um, actually, I was in a molecular biology curriculum before molecular biology really came of age. I took lots of biochemistry and lots of physical chemistry, which I really liked the PCAM. But when I think I was in my third semester of an advanced PCAM course, and I got a 45 on the exam, and I gave it to my husband, who had had just freshman chemistry quite a number of years before, and he got a 90 because he could do the equations that I got all bollocks up in. <laughs> I said, I don't think that's for me. But um, my thesis was- That's probably your first 45 you'd ever gotten on a test. Oh, absolutely. I'm guessing, or at least a science absolutely. test. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think it was actually the highest grade of any of the biologists in the, in the <laughs> class. But- Anyhow, that was, but we had a great um, five years out in Illinois. Um, I finished a couple of months before my husband did um, the first semester of that fifth year. And uh, they asked me to teach a course in molecular genetics as for uh, advanced undergrads and graduate students because the fact the professor was going to be spending a sabbatical and I was going to be there anyway. So that was great. Uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, and then we had made the decision that I would follow my husband, at least for the first job, because I wanted to do a postdoc. Um, and in math, at least at that point in time, you didn't do a postdoc. So it's harder for him to get an academic job than it was for me to get a postdoc. So we ended up in Amherst, Massachusetts, where he was teaching at Amherst College, and I got a postdoc at UMass. Um, we also had our first child then. And I was one of those, I, I will tell you that I was not very happy working full time with a new baby. Um, and I had gotten, I had written a Damon Runyon uh, 
fellowship award and, and won it, won it. And so I went into the chair of the biochemistry department and I said, you have a choice. You either let me work part-time or I quit. He didn't have anything to lose. You know, I agreed basically to work out the time of the fellowship. I would take twice as long, but I was only going to work part-time. Um, so I did that and that was great. And I think it was wonderful. But then after a couple of years, my husband um, decided that he was going to move to Hamilton College, which was in upstate New York. Now, Amherst is at least in an area where there are lots of very major significant colleges and universities in a small area. Hamilton is about 20 minutes outside of Utica, New York, which is really not the center of the academic universe um, or the, the economic universe at that point in time either. And we ended up in upstate New York and he was teaching at Hamilton and I was able to get like a one year visiting faculty appointment at Kirkland College, which was the girls college across the road from Hamilton. I had, think I'd been there maybe a month when we were informed that um, Hamilton was taking over Kirkland. And they would not even consider me for a vacancy in their biology department, because how could a faculty wife be faculty? So there we were in the middle of upstate New York. What year was that? This was 1975, 74, 75. There we were in the middle of upstate New York, and I had to find something. And first, there, there was a small branch that had recently been established at the State University of New York in Utica, which is basically, it was a very small teaching program. And I taught genetics there. And then um, on the other side of Utica, there was a research institute called the Masonic Medical Research Institute, which was on the grounds of the home for the Masons, the, the old age home for the Masons of New York State. And they were determined to solve the problems of aging. And there happened to be, uh, they were really world-renowned for their work on uh, cardio, cardiac electrophysiology and aging. But they also had a pretty good group looking at the biochemical changes associated with aging. And frankly, mm. I, I, they, they hired me, um, and, and I only wanted to work part-time again because I had now two babies at home. And that was great. And I... At, they, so they paid me half time, like for a year. And then I, I wrote an NIH postdoctoral and I got funded again. And I did the same thing. I said, okay, I'll take two years of this funding and I'm going to work it out the time. So we did that. And that was great. And that kind of is what led me into kind of environmental health and toxicology because the fellow that I was working with had the hypothesis that the age-related increase in cancer was mm -hmm. associated with a change in our ability to metabolize things like benzpyrene and methylpalanthrene and other environmental kinds of chemicals. So I not only got to kind of move into a little bit of environmental issues, um, I got to work on the issue of biochemical changes during aging, which turned out to be really interesting. We had our own aging colonies of rats and mice. I also, um, not only I started, this is where I got introduced to PCBs and to TCDD because PCBs are very effective inducers of metabolism. And I wrote to 
the guy who was in charge of the labs at Monsanto in St. Louis said, you know, I'm going to be studying these as inducers. Could you send me some? The next thing I knew, I got a gallon of PCBs. So that was kind of my entree. And I'll never forget, every year we would have open house at least once a year where masons could come through and see what their money was helping to support and so on. And I remember this whole group came through from Schenectady, New York. And mm-hmm. here I was talking about the problems associated with PCBs, and there's evidence that they are associated with an increased risk of cancer as well as other health effects. And this guy says to me, I am up to a vat of PCBs, you know, up to my elbows every day, and I'm fine. I wish I had taken his name to find out how fine he was 20, 30 years later. But yeah, that was kind Jeez. of my introduction. But after living in upstate New York for about four and a half years, we both kind of decided this was not where we wanted to live forever. I think the fact that it was really beautiful about two weeks a year in the summer, you know, but, but it started snowing by Halloween. You take the kids trick or treating and it was snowing and you go to commencement in the spring in May and it was snowing. There was something wrong with that picture for us. And, um, I had my sister and brother-in-law, one of them had moved down to North Carolina for my brother-in-law to do his um, residency at Duke. And we went down to visit them. And I knew that at that time, it was really one of the centers for environmental kind of work in the country. So I started writing around and calling around. And, you know, in in less than a year, I had gotten a, um, a staff fellowship position in the brand new NTP at NIEHS. So um, I came down and the first project I was assigned was on something called TCDF, which is Mm -hmm. very structurally related to TCDD. And if anyone had Mm -hmm. told me over 40 years ago that I'd still be interested in dioxins and related compounds, I would have said, oh, come on, you know. But anyhow, that's how I kind of got into it. Honestly, I had to look up what toxicology was. I had no idea what it was, you know, at that point, because that totally unrelated to my training. Um, Right. So anyway, we came down in uh, the end of or towards the end of 1979. And um, the rest is kind of history as far as we became North Carolinians. So... before, so that you were introduced to the idea of the the environmental side of the science uh, up in Utica. Before then, when you were studying, you know, as an undergrad and as a grad student, what what did you see? What were you thinking? Your path? Were you expecting to be a teach a professor? I thought I would go in. Did you want I, to do research? I thought I would always go into academia. So that when I had uh-huh. that one that one year um, visiting appointment at Kirkland Mm -hmm. before it was taken over by Hamilton, I had thought that's what I wanted to do, be a small college teacher where I could have, I could probably do some microbiology with my students without, when you didn't have many resources and so on. And I realized within a couple months that I really missed the lab. And that kind of sent me back towards the lab. I will say that within, oh my goodness, um, of Less than within two years of being in North Carolina, I had adjunct appointment at in the School of Public Health at UNC, um, which was a great. I still have that appointment. I mean, I got promoted, 
adjunct <laughs> going up, you know, from assistant associate full professor there. But I ended up having lots of graduate students, mainly through UNC. I also got an adjunct appointment in the integrated toxicology program at Duke University. And I had a couple students from there, but Duke was much more reticent to let their students work off campus um, hmm. for their PhD. Then Carolina was very happy to have someone else basically uh, take the uh, laboratory expenses of their students by having them work, work elsewhere. So, but right. that was but that was great. But frankly, my um, undergraduate training, my graduate was focused much more on um, biochemistry and molecular biology issues. I mean, I was the first person to actually map the genes for ribosomal RNA. Um, in, in E. coli. And, um, you, you know, if someone had said to me that I would, a couple of years later, be doing in vivo studies with rats, I'm not sure. Well, maybe it was coming back to the roots that I did. When I was <laughs> right, right. You know, but, but I, I probably wouldn't have believed them. So, I mean, it, I didn't start in toxicology or environmental health because I had a passion for it. It was something that developed over time right. as I began to study and learn more of the issues. So the PCBs uh, sparked your interest. I mean, that was actually, did you like, did you find that particular work interesting, the PCBs? Or? Well, I, I, the fact that they were such potent inducers. And then again, the mm -hmm. fact that we also use dioxin and dioxin is extremely potent as an inducer, but PCBs, because it's a complex mix, induces a broader spectrum of enzymes than dioxin. Um, so it was interesting to compare and contrast kind of the, mm -hmm. the effects that they had looking at changes in metabolism, um, you know, as well as I didn't do any toxicity studies in, update, in upstate New York. I was really looking at um, the metabolic effects. I did do some stuff that I did in upstate New York, and then I did a few more studies down in North Carolina, which is, you may remember the Ames assay that Bruce Ames mm -hmm. developed to look for mutagens with the idea being that carcinogens are mutagens, um, which is a rather oversimplistic, but it, you know, in the seventies, that was pretty exciting. And it was an easy assay to get up and running. Um, basically, you know, you could use different strains of a, a salmonella bacteria and treat it with different chemicals and see whether you got, oh, you would add um, a, a, an extract of the liver from your mice or rats that you had treated. So I actually mm -hmm. did that with animals of different age to look at the difference in effectiveness of mutagenicity because of this metabolism. So that was, that was also kind of began to get me into this issue of, oh my goodness, you know, chemicals can cause mutations. Obviously I've known that for a long time, but environmental chemicals could. So right. including PCBs. <laughs> and, when you were at Illinois, that was, I think you were there in 1970. So Earth Day 1970, which is a, you know, one milestone among several. Did that, did that have any resonance for you at the time? Was there any connection? I don't, you aware I don't it? remember it at all. At all. Okay. What I remember more from that time was the protests against the Vietnam War. Yeah. And how active was the campus at Illinois? It was pretty active. That? You know, when mm -hmm. after Kent State, they actually came in and glued in place all the stones that were around the trees so that the students couldn't throw them. It was a horrifying feeling. I mean, we had, you know, we had troops 
lining the streets. I mean, to try to walk into my laboratory through, you know, the National Guard was pretty horrific and very upsetting. And the whole, you know, college town was all boarded up because of Mm. rioting that occurred and stuff. So that was much more impactful at that point in time, I think, than um, any of the kind of the environmental stuff. Okay. So you moved to North Carolina and you've already had the NIH fellowship. So you're interested in getting into NIH. And uh, so the National Toxicology Program, the NTB had just been, NTP, excuse me, had just been established. So uh, talk about the NTP a little bit and what that is and what what you did there in your first, you came back later, obviously, but you were there for about 10 years, right? I was at, I was at NIHS um, for 10 years, correct. And NTP was first established by Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Joseph Califano, in 1978. Mm-hmm. And the head of NTP, uh, it was in the establishment, was the head of N- NTP, would also be the head of NIEHS, and the organization would be headquartered at NIEHS, although at that time it involved NCI as well as NIOSH and um National Center for Toxicological Research, which is part of the FDA, and NIOSH is now part of CDC. The NCI kind of- That's the National Cancer Institute, just to say what some of these acronyms are for (laughs) people. Right. And NIOSH is the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health. Um, Right. So these are all organizations that were involved in testing. And in fact, NTP had been running the two-year cancer bioassay for quite a number of years. And frankly, they didn't want to keep doing it. So that entire Mm -hmm. program was transferred to NTP and for NIEHS to run it. Um, I see. So when I was part of NTP, I I mean, I was in the intramural program of NIEHS and uh, NTP. Um, I kind of, I, I was able to get tenure in about a year and a half after being there, which was very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked into my boss's office the day after I got tenure and told him I was going to take the summer off. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And I said, well, number three is on the way. So, <laughs> And, you know, at that point in time, this is 1981. Um, mm-hmm. if, if they had known I was pregnant, I never would have gotten tenure. I already had two strikes against me because I had two kids. And the fact right. that, you know, um, I can remember laughing when I was at NIHS in the 80s, especially when I still had young, <laughs> three young children around and yeah. I'd go home at the end of the day and I wouldn't even take work home with me because who could do it? You know, you go home at the end of the day, there's, you know, there's dinner, there's bath time, there's story time, and then it's time for you to collapse as well as, as well as the kids. And right. I can, I can remember seeing these guys going home with full briefcases. But I found that um, I was just very motivated and very focused. So I didn't spend a lot of time, you know, having coffee with people or stuff because I was working. Um, And I I think, I don't think I would have been very different um, had I not had kids, for example. But I I kind of moved from uh, the group that I uh, was hired into at um, NIEHS was looking at the pharmacokinetic behavior of different environmental chemicals. And um, mm-hmm. and so I really did a number of chemicals in addition to the chemicals, the PCBs and the dioxins and the 
um, dibenzofurans, which are all related to dioxins, I was actually, I also ran a very large contract that we had out at Level Ace Inhalation Research Institute out in New Mexico, um, where we were looking at volatile chemicals and at the inhalation, um, what the pharmacokinetics. So I got into studying benzene, for example, and butadiene, which are, you know, benzene is a clear human carcinogen. We know that from lots of um, human studies and butadiene, there's lots of epi that demonstrates the high association. And then there are all the animal studies that back it up. So I, I, right. I kind of studied a wide variety of different kinds of environmental chemicals. At the same point, because of my interest in dioxins and PCBs, I was working on trying to, how can we assess the risks? How can we know if a chemical is going to be dioxin-like without running a two-year bioassay and seeing if it causes tumors? And uh, right. I started um, running a, a screen using a developmental screen where uh, pregnant mice, if you treat them with dioxin-like chemicals, the offspring are born with a cleft palate and a kidney deficit. And I was able to actually show kind of the relative potency of different PCBs and different furans and different dioxins. Um, and that was pretty, pretty um insightful and, and interesting and got me into the whole area of the toxic equivalency approach, which is a relative potency scheme in a way that you can express the toxicity of a mixture as if it were just TCDD. Well, when I was doing this, we were also, um, there were some brominated dioxins and brominated furans that had been found, again, never intentionally made, but they were being found environmentally. And I was able to show that they were very, very similar in their toxicity, as well as their kinetics to the chlorinated ones. And I'm, mm -hmm. I remember giving a talk in 1993 um, and writing a paper, actually, for the World Health Organization, where I said, these are really nasty chemicals. And if we really find them out there in the environment, and if we start finding them in people, we better be concerned. And at that, you know, 10 years later, or less than 10 years later, I became very concerned because that's when I really got interested in the brominate of flame retardants. Right. Now, I was an EPA by that point. You right. know. So what was, who would decide, what, what, what would prompt a particular study or per, focus on a particular chemical? How in the national, well, in the national NIEHS hierarchy, you know, we're going to look at butadiene and we're going to look at benzene. Is that coming from something that EPA needed or something that HHS so, needed? Or how, how are these things, what prompted a particular study or a particular focus? I'd say it depended. Sometimes it was just mm -hmm. something I got interested in and I read about and I thought this is related. Um, but definitely uh -huh. in the NTP, which is a program solving, um, a problem solving program, mm -hmm. you know, the issue would be we need to understand, look, there's all this data showing that butadiene is highly, highly carcinogenic. We've got to get a better handle on its kinetic behavior. Or, you know, there's lots of evidence that benzene is a carcinogen in people and it's carcinogenic in our animal models. And again, we need a better handle on dose response relationships and that kind of thing. So there would be a lot of here are topics um, of interest. And often, and often there'd be kind of a, um, a menu and you could pick, you know, one from column mm -hmm. A and two from column B um, for things that you would study. But 
But NTP, again, was trying to address specific issues. So I was often working in that arena. But like my development of kind of this in vivo developmental screen for answering the questions about the oxen was something that oxen like was kind of something that I developed on my own. And it got me very interested um, in some of the mechanisms of development. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we actually studied you know, what were some of the controlling growth factors and stuff in 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 uh, the fusion of the palate during development. And we worked not only with mouse palates and rat palates, and we did those both, both in organ culture as well as in vivo. And then we actually got human um, embryonic material, um, mm. basically, that we could look at and understand what, where the human susceptibility fit to this specific endpoint in relationship to the mouse or the rat. Say a little bit, uh, just take a minute to talk about what you mean when you're talking about kinetics and pharmacokinetics. People, I think more people know, okay, a cancer assay, figuring out if it's carcinogenic, but just explain a little bit about that piece. Okay, so pharmacokinetics is really what um, the body does to the chemical. As compared to when you're talking about the effects, then it's what the chemical does to the body. So mm -hmm. when you're studying the pharmacokinetics, you want to know, is this chemical absorbed? Once it's absorbed, where does it go in the body? Mm -hmm. And once it gets there, you know, is does it stay the way like dioxin where it doesn't get changed in the body? It actually, right. then it goes to the fat and stays in the fat. But mm -hmm. once it's in the tissues, then does it get metabolized, especially by the liver? but other organs. And then if it does get metabolized, what happens to it then? Does it just go out through the bile or does it go to the kidneys and come out through the urine? The bile would end up going to the, to the feces. So trying to understand mm -hmm. the, the pathway of a chemical, what does this body do to it? And sometimes you'd find chemicals that, you know, one species would metabolize it and get rid of it very quickly. And another species would do, it would just sit. Mm -hmm. And we actually, and that has implications. So I think one of our first examples that we found was guinea pigs are exquisitely sensitive to the toxicity of TCDF, which is this relative to TCDD. Rats right. and mice got to go to much, much, hundred times higher doses than you have to give of TCDD. What did it turn out to be? Rats and mice were able to chew up TCDF and get rid of it, the guinea pig hmm. couldn't. And that's why wow. it was so so susceptible to that chemical. So that's, you know, you would have this crossover between the effects and what happens, you know, what the body's doing to the chemical. Because I, I, I think I mentioned that dioxin goes and sits in your fat. Right, and yeah. So in the guinea pig, the, 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 the furan went and sat in the fat. But right. in, in mice... And uh, rats, it was pretty rapidly metabolized and eliminated. And so, during the time you're doing this, well, a couple of questions. You're, you're, um, you talked about how you were raising three kids, young kids during this time. This is basically seventy nine to eighty nine, well, starting 80. starting in seventy two till oh seventy two seventy two until well, meant, actually it, the, about nineteen ninety. No, about two thousand. <laughs> Right. I meant actually, at, at, but at the NTP, at the National Toxicology that, Program. That was 79 to uh, yeah. 89. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, and you were talking about going home after work and there's a whole other job waiting for you when you walk in the door. Um, 
but you were also publishing many papers. You have a remarkable amount of published papers for somebody who doesn't like to write. So, <laughs> um, and and a number of them are on these topics you've been talking. I mean, they're all on these topics you've been talking about on dioxins and PCBs. And uh, so, how were you? Was was writing those articles part of the work, or was that a side piece to the work? No, or well, when were almost, you? Uh, the writing was part of the work. In other words, and okay. I try to when I'm talking to students or stuff, I try to make the point to them: if you don't publish what you do, why did you do it? You mm-hmm. have a responsibility, especially when you're funded by the government or something and the taxpayers of this country, you have an absolute responsibility to give back. And the giving back is publishing the results of your work. So, I see. yeah, I was pretty prolific. And I, I didn't hate writing the science the way I didn't like writing essays. Um, but, you know, and, and part of my successful and large number of publications is that I've always been, well, I had a lot of students and postdocs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also collaborate. You know, I right. I am not a uh, sole scientist. I think today, especially more so even than 30, 40 years ago, team science is absolutely essential. None of us can know right. everything. And so I think by talking and working with other people, you can maximize um, not only your understanding, but your output too. Right. And advancing the knowledge that much farther and faster, Correct. I guess, the general knowledge. So the other question was, so in this period in the 80s, basically, um, you're doing this work on these chemicals, dioxins and PCBs and others. And that's also the time that the Superfund law is being you know, first passed in 1980 and then reauthorized in 1986, strengthened right. in 1986. And so there's a, a real focus uh, both in sort of federal policy terms and also quite a bit out in the public arena of of chemical waste sites, of toxic waste sites. And, um, you know, Love Canal had come to public light in 78 and 79. I guess that's when you were in Utica, roughly. Um, but uh, so w- was that whole public policy conversation that was taking place? And at that time, there was a lot more activity in Congress of you know, really trying to pass some laws and, and do some things to address these toxic waste sites. Was that, was there interaction either directly or sort of indirectly between what the NTP would focus on and what your research would be from what they were trying to grapple with uh, either over at EPA or in Congress? Well, the answer is absolutely. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of crosstalk and crosswalk. So um, I can remember being very frustrated um, as a scientist at NIEHS and doing some work with tri, uh, trichloroethane, which is a solvent, mm-hmm. um, large volume. And I would call up the air office at EPA and say, can you tell me what you're doing? What are your concerns? And they would tell me. And then I'd call the water office or no, no, no. Then the water office would call me and say, what are you doing? We want to know, <laughs> you know, and it was like, None of the parts of EPA spoke to each other. They were all silos, you know, air, water, Mm -hmm. um, what are the hazardous waste, which is where Superfund was, and then kind of chemical toxic. And if you were dealing with the chemicals, I mean, TCE was one, but benzene was another one, which is basically present Mm -hmm. in all media. And it was like there was no communication, which drove me crazy, Um, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, as as far as, but but we did work very closely with uh, the different regulatory agencies if they were interested in something and and we were working on it. Mm -hmm. 
And how does, so NIEHS, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, I was going to ask you how it relates to the rest of the federal family of National Institutes of Health, but also if you can say just a little bit more about NIHS and the uh, the concept of environmental health sciences, because that's that's really the crux of of your work, I would say. Um, so say a little bit about that. So NIHS was um, actually established in 1966. Um, mm-hmm. Initially, it's like spun off of part of NCI, um, and but it was never located anywhere but North Carolina. Um, we were a gift. Of uh, from Jack Kennedy, um, obviously he wasn't there by '66, but he had promised Terry right. Sanford, after delivering North Carolina to the Democratic column in 1960, that he would place some major federal facilities, other than military, which we already had in North Carolina here in North Carolina. Right. So I think an, a lot of the initial stimulus for NIEHS came from, for example, the burning Cuyahoga River. In 1969, mm-hmm. and the whole concerns that was leading to the development of EPA also had kind of started with NIHS. And of course, a lot of the NCI uh, bioassay was based often upon occupational exposures, where you had very right. high levels of exposure to people and you had a lot of um, adverse health effects that were being reported. So that's kind of how it got started down here. And NIHS is an odd duck in the NIH firmament. Um, I'd say it's the only institute that focuses on the environment, obviously. It's also the only one that really's main focus is prevention as opposed to development of treatment and cures. Not that we haven't done some of that, but the focus is prevention because if you understand what it is in your environment that's causing a problem, you should be able to do something about it, at least theoretically. So I think that kind of is kind of what makes it it different. Um, the NIEHS has a actually has a Superfund program, which was created when when the 1986 reauthorization or strengthening of the Superfund laws came into place. And so, um, at, at, when it was first established, it was a direct pass through through EPA's budget to NIEHS. That, my understanding, was not always very comfortable. In mm-hmm. other words, there were times that. EPA didn't want to give up that money. <laughs> yeah, the um, money wasn't passing the way it was. Correct. To. So at about, yes. about 10 or so years after that, the, that appropriation came directly to NIEHS. And I think we are the only NIH Institute to explicitly get direct funding from outside of the HELP Appropriations Committees. And I this see. was from the yeah. Interior and Environment because that's where the super fund money came from. The same time that NIEHS got that appropriation, the um, Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry was established under that um, CERCLA or SARI, right. which was which. Um, yeah. But anyhow, so that that's kind of how, how that came about. So NIEHS is just a little different, you know, um, being in North Carolina is both a challenge and an opportunity, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, but, you know, you can't always get noticed, but you can also lay low. Correct. And, correct. At times, you, you know, you can be out to. of the range of a thing, but we had to provide everything for ourselves um, down mm-hmm. in North Carolina, which, you know, meant that our budgeting process was very, had to be very different. You know, it wasn't a central animal st- <laughs> that you could deal with or central health and safety or even a central 
um, security force that we had mm. to deal with. Yeah, right. But um, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but you know, my first ten years at NIEHS when I was pretty much a grunt in the lab, having a great time. Yeah. You know, I think and moving up the chain, um, you know, getting tenure and then getting my own group and so on. Um, uh, You know, um, I when I moved to EPA, it was because I got one of those offers you really can't refuse. You know, so I want to hear about I wanted I was just about to ask you about that. So but just before we go to that transition, you became head of the chemical control group. No, chemical disposition. Oh, chemical dis- disposition, disposition so- is, is the um, a description of the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion of chemicals in the body. So it's basically I a see. description, uh, a non-quantitative description of the pharmacokinetics. I see. Okay. And um, and the super fun work that NAH, NT, well, NIHS was tasked or mandated to do by Congress. What was that work? And did you play a role in any of that at the time, that first, the, your first My tour first of NIHS? Only if NTP, there was something that NTP wanted to study that was a super fun issue. So benzene and butadiene are both super fun chemicals as well, for example, as well as PCBs, right. obviously. But Right. The Superfund program for NIEHS is really um, a totally an extramural program mm-hmm. and, okay. and funds both uh, re- research programs, research centers largely, and also uh, worker training in um, hazardous waste cleanup and emergency response. Okay. Very non-NIH typical. Yes, right. That's that's interesting. I'm sure there's some legislative story as to how that ended up how that ended up coming to yes a very effective director david rawl oh okay that was david rawl went out and got that interesting um so he was the director while you were there he was director the whole time i was there and it makes me Mm -hmm. very sad that um you know he passed away he was killed in a car accident in france in i think maybe the late 1990s and it yeah. It's sad to me that he wasn't around when I became director because um, we had a very nice working relationship. And he had tried to keep yeah. me at NIEHS when I went to EPA. But, you know, basically, um, it was time for me to take a step out. And here I had an opportunity to make a big career move without moving my family and moving my home. Right. And my husband and I had decided both of, both sets of our parents had moved to North Carolina I, my sister oh, my. and husband and her kids were in North Carolina, and we had decided this is where we lived. So I was right. very lucky to get such a great yeah. career opportunity. Um, literally, at the time, it was three miles down the road from where EPA was located to where NIEHS was at the time. Right. Okay. So so you get an offer, and, and EPA has some – we're going to talk about this now. EPA has labs. A lot of their labs are in North Carolina. And um, so talk about the, the job offer and, and about that next step. So I, I had seen the director of EPA labs at an SOT meeting, Society of Toxicology mm-hmm. meeting. It must have been in 1989, in the spring of 1989. And he was telling me about this direction that he had just been appointed the lab director for the health effects research lab. And he was telling me about directions we were going. And I said, well, Laura, if you ever hear anything interesting that you think I might be interested, why don't you let me know? And about Mm -hmm. six months later, he calls and he said, 
yeah, kind of be interested in having you come over. And, you know, I went over and did an interview and it was a great opportunity. Um, I was going, I was appointed to run what at the time was called the Environmental Toxicology Division. We later changed Mm -hmm. the name to Experimental Toxicology Division because um, we had lots of environmental toxicology going on that had nothing to do with understanding the impacts on people. And my focus was Mm -hmm. always, you know, using animal models or even in vitro approaches to predict the health to people. So um, I had three main groups that I was going to be running or in charge, if I should say, providing leadership to. One, uh, the largest, or I would say maybe the most effective one was on inhalation toxicology, which Mm -hmm. all I knew about inhalation was because I had run had been the contract officer or the project officer for this contract with Lovelace that was looking at the inhalation pharmacokinetics of some compounds. Um, So I had some handle on how do you do an aerosol exposure or vapor exposure or a gas exposure, but I really didn't know all that much about it. Um, So that Mm -hmm. was one group. And within that, there was a group of immunotoxicologists. And I knew nothing about immunotox at the time other than that whenever they put up that first slide that shows the primordial hematopoietic stem cell and it goes to two lines and then that splits into more cells and at which point I blank out. Um, <laughs> but I had some great people to work with there. And then we had um, groups looking at kinetic issues and disposition issues. And we had group, mm-hmm. groups looking at kidney um, and liver toxicity. So those were kind of the, the major groups that I had there. And um, I was able to grow that program significantly uh, by, in part by uh, encouraging my uh, scientists to get academic positions at the surrounding university, and we're in a pretty rich area for that, and mm-hmm. that enabled them to bring on board graduate students. So uh, yeah. um, I think at one point I had as many as about 150 people in my division between the students and the postdocs and some contractors um, we, we actually had one of, I would say possibly one of the world's best in inhala- animal inhalation facility that we ran. Hmm. And we had that largely run by contractors. We would turn all the knobs and whistles and stuff. Um, but right. it was a pretty, it, it was a pretty exciting group doing some wonderful work in many areas. So I would say that a lot of the work, um, related to the toxicity, first of ozone and then some of NOx and then, uh, PM the animal studies that were done in that division were among some of the key ones that were used. And you won numerous multiple awards for your research within EPA during this time, uh, more than a dozen, I believe, for excellence in the science that you were doing. So that you were recognized certainly within EPA for your um, very high quality, uh, groundbreaking work. So for that lab... At that point, what are you, is, I don't want to say it this way, but I will <laughs> see what your reaction is. Is Are the labs there serving the, the environmental program, serving the air program or the water yes. program? Or are they? Yes. Okay. And, or, so, or, so that is more setting the research agenda in a way? Well, um, you know, again, the um, NHURL, which was the National Health and Environmental Effects Research Laboratory, um, mm-hmm. is a problem-solving organization. And they have to solve the problems of the different program offices or the coordination that may be, you know, that parts of ORD are doing in the risk assessment program. 
So Mm -hmm. several of the divisions in our laboratory, well, there were several ecological divisions that focused on, say, mid-continent ecology or West Coast ecology and stuff like that. Or there was, for Mm -hmm. example, the neurotox division that we had was focused mainly on pesticides. The the developmental and reprotox division also was a lot of pesticide work. Uh, The work that my division was doing was much more air and water related. And some super fun related stuff. So depending on kind of what you were doing, but the lines weren't hard. There there was Mm -hmm. some flexibility and there was a lot of work. And I encouraged my people to work across divisional lines. So at that time, um, NHRL had a human studies division, which was actually located on the campus of UNC's medical school. And Mm -hmm. um, in that facility, we actually had um, inhalation exposure chambers for people where we would expose them to levels of ozone or PM or nitrous oxides that were less than they might get if they were standing on the street corner. But we were able to monitor them for impacts on heart rate or um, lung function and stuff like that, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So we could actually do those kinds of studies there. And I did spend one year actually being the acting director of that division uh, when the person who had been director left, then it, they asked me to step in. And that turned out to be a great year for me because it was such a challenge. Here I knew nothing about doing human <laughs> studies. And not only was I now in charge of them, but it, that was also where the epidemiology group was. And, right. you know, when I up to that point knew nothing about epidemiology. So I spent a year having a great deal of fun learning things that I never would have thought. And I think it helped me later on having that introduction. So that was a great experience. So during this period, you've got a huge number of employees basically that you're directing in different programs. Had you done any management? Had you played a role, a managing role very much before that? And, and how that's quite a step up just as, as far as the managing obligation? Did you like that work or how did you move into managing? And also how did you maintain the, you know, the lab work and the publishing you were doing while also basically keeping many other plates spinning or, you know, other balls in the air through management? So I'll take them separately, keeping the lab work going when you're running a large program. And um, I look a lot of it as providing scientific leadership as well as management. First of all, you've got, got to have good people to work with you know, both for management and for science. No question about that. So, you know, I had some very good administrative help that I could have do some of the administrative stuff that needed to be done. But back to the science, the way that I kept a lot of that going was, again, by I had students and postdocs and by collaboration. I would say by about 2000, 2002, every time I went in the lab, everybody wanted to run screaming out the other end because they knew I'd come in and screw something up. (laughs) Because I, you know, when you're in a lab, you got to be doing it all the time. Um, And it's kind of ironic that you, you start your lab work because that's what you love to do. But that as you kind of march up the chain, you actually get your hands wet less often. Right. So a lot of my role became conceptualizing, coming up with ideas, you know, helping to design experiments, helping to interpret experiments. I did get, you know, I did get my hands dirty every time that we were, say, going to be having to kill a lot of animals at one point in time in our experiment in order to do measurements and stuff. 
I'd be in there with the group because mm-hmm. they needed another pair of hands. However, they weren't as good as some of theirs, but, you know, kind of hands. So that's kind yeah. of how I kept the lab work doing. As far as the management, I mean, that actually started when I was at NIEHS and I became a group leader. Um, there was a requirement to take, I think, 40 hours of supervisory training, which I hated. <laughs> you know, most people hate this kind of training, but it was something you had to do, so you did it. Um, at EPA, I took quite a bit of management and leadership training, supervisory training over the years, which most of the time I fought kicking and screaming. But I have to tell you that about three months after I had become director of NIEHS, I made an appointment to speak to my former lab director at EPA. And I went over and I said, Larry, you better sit down. And he looked at me like crazy. I said, I have to thank you for making me insisting that we take that kind of training. Hmm. Um, I can't, not every hour of it was so great, but you, I did learn a lot um, Mm -hmm. by doing that kind of training. We were also forced to take lots of communications training. And that I think was invaluable. And um, that is something that I required, for example, at NIEHS, that essentially everyone, um, all this, all the scientists, all the postdocs would get communications training. Because again, as much as I didn't like to write essays, you got to know how to write and you have to know how to speak. Right. And were you, was your science visibly playing a role in different policy decisions at that time over during your time at EPA on the, in the clean air, uh, ambient air quality standards or in other parts of things. Okay. So, so the, the, my, uh, inhalation group there was definitely playing a role in the NACs as well as some of the hazardous air pollutants. Some of the work that was done in my division was very impactful related to disinfection byproducts and the, uh, regulations that were set about them, the levels that were set by the Office Mm -hmm. of Water. Uh, You know, I think all the work we did had some impact. Some of the greatest of my own personal work that I think had a lot of impacts was the dioxin work, where I was really the first one to kind of stress the fact that you can't look at daily dose to compare your animals and your people, Um, that you have to look at what when you're dealing with a persistent bioaccumulative chemical, you have to find out what's in the body. Mm-hmm. So if you understand the kinetic behavior, you can actually predict what the levels will be in the body. But th- that really changed the dialogue about the toxicity of dioxins and was very important. Um, I played a major role in the dioxin reassessment. And the first version of that was released in 1994. Yes. And then there was a second version in 2000. Yes. And the cancer has never been finalized, but the non-cancer was finally finalized in 2010. And a lot of the work that I did or the work that was done under my direction was very impactful there. So I, I think in all areas, you know, both my personal laboratory efforts, um, I mentioned before that with the dioxins and the PCBs, I was one of the, a major factor in developing the relative potency or the toxic equivalency approach, which is how dioxins are regulated today. Right. Um, and, and so that, that was really quite impactful. So that, that was sort of a solution for at least that class of chemicals, dioxins, f- to the one-by-one one individual problem that comes up often. Uh, you know, we can't measure this or we can't regulate it because it's there's so many PCBs 
I'm, I'm, I guess I'm asking this as a question that, that, that you're, you're, uh, you found a way that toxic, toxic, excuse me, the TEQ toxicological equivalent approach provided a conceptual basis for regulating them as a class. Is that accurate or not? Not the way to think about it. That's true for the dachshunds and furans and for the dachshund like PCBs, which are a very small set of the total PCB mixtures. Right. But PCB as a mixture yeah. is regulated as a mixture. Yes, right. No, I was talking about the dioxins. Yes. Yeah. So the dioxins, and in fact, if you're trying to clean up sediment or soil, um, what is used today is the TEQ approach. Right. And so that's that's been, I think, really impactful. I mean, I w- yeah. I'm not the only one who developed that, <laughs> but I, I would say I was a pretty major player and, and really pushed for its adoption. Right. And so uh, let's just talk for a minute about policy because it just came up in the dioxin sense. So the dioxin reassessment, people won't know what that is or what that, I mean, say a little bit about the dioxin reassessment and the, and the, all that went into that, or, you know, that, that was a, it ended up being a significant sort of policy science, you know, it, it was a good example of, you know, policy and politics getting in the way of what the science was telling us needed to be done about, you know, or at least establishing how problematic these chemicals were. So in 1985, EPA assessed the uh, toxicity of dioxin and concluded it was uh, a probable human carcinogen. Over the next five, six, seven years, the database built that not only was dioxin carcinogenic in animals, but we got the first data on carcinogenesis in people. Partially Mm -hmm. the NIOSH study was released. We got more information on levels that had been in our Air Force veterans from the ranch hand program and, and that effort. And just the data was building, plus this idea that, well, wait, 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 yes, clearly carcinogenic in, in rats and mice and hamsters. But they would say, oh my God, the dose you have to use is so high. And the understanding that you can't look at just the administered dose, you have to understand what's in the animal at the time was really impactful in moving the whistle forward. forward. Um, mm-hmm. There also began to be some data coming out of the Seveso experience, which was Seveso, Seveso is um, a town outside of Milan in Italy where an Ecmesa plant producing trichlorophenol exploded and sprayed an area with not only trichlorophenol, but dioxin, which was an unwanted contaminant. And mm-hmm. um, a very, very forward-thinking occupational physician, Paolo Maccarelli, was able to get blood, several milliliters, from over 30,000 people in that area within two months of the explosion, hmm. which kind of gave you almost a time zero to look at what was it at the height. And uh, the initial studies from that that came out within a year or two of the explosion didn't show much. But as time went on, they began to um, see adverse effects in the population. And some of it, of course, was asking different questions. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think the uh, dioxin causes a plethora of health effects in males and females during development, throughout life, and so on, in in pretty much any vertebrate species. And that understanding came about very dramatically. The amounts of knowledge grew dramatically in the 1980s and into Mm -hmm. the 90s. So the reassessment was, okay, 
1985, EPA said this is a probable human carcinogen. Oh, guess what? It's much more than a carcinogen. Yes, it's a carcinogen and we have more data, but it's also doing all these other kinds of effects. So that was what the reassessment entailed. But it took a very long time. There was a great deal of um, opposition to it, Mm -hmm. both political opposition and, and chemical industry opposition to this. But things were happening so that understanding that this this was was that the dioxins were a problem understanding that there were a number of industrial processes which produced it unintentionally those processes were stopped understanding that not well controlled incineration processes produced that uh, led to the establishment of maximum achievable control technologies for safer incineration uh, that mm-hmm. the bleaching of paper and pulp products could lead to these, you know, those basically industry moved away from those processes. They didn't want to make something that contained dioxin either. So mm-hmm. it took the first, the, the reassessment was released in 94. It took about six years for it to go through the science advisory board review and revision of it to about 2000 when the next document came out. Um, and then it took, quite a few more years before, um, in fact, it wasn't until 2010 that they finalized the uh, non-cancer risk assessment, and they've never finalized the cancer. But the good news is by establishing these regulatory controls, say on incineration and some other processes, the levels came down both in people and in the environment. Right. Okay. So that story relates to another question, this issue of um, time. You know the time, the amount of time to get from scientific knowledge, you know, six years you said to get through the science advisory board process at EPA for the first dioxin reassessment. How much of that six years? I mean, or this is an example. There's other examples. How much of that six years is actually, you know, needed if you were just doing a you know peer review evaluation of a study or a set of studies, and how much is, you know, just bureaucratic hurdles or lethargy or political resistance, you know, things that are holding things up because I I think there are a number of instances of, um, you know, where the science has developed is developing or has developed about concern about chemicals or a class of chemicals, but the system, it's one example of the way the system moves very slowly to reaching a point of action. Now I understand you're saying things were happening along the way that were reducing the exposures to dioxin even while this process was playing out. So that was good. But I'd say that if you didn't have all the political and bureaucratic obstacles, instead of six years at most, it would have been as two years. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, I, you know, I haven't really thought in detail about wh- how you could, but, you know, in many of the development of regulations and the, and the whole policy setting, there are times for public comment. There's time for interagency and intra-agency comments. And yep. nothing is ever done coincidentally. It's always sequential. And it takes a great deal of time. And then, yep. then you know, if there's no uh, legal kind of requirement for something to be done by a specific date, things tend to slip. So you know, under right. the Clean Air Act and the Clean Air Act amendments, um, your national ambient air quality standards, and there are six parts of that, and each right. one has to be reviewed every five years. 
They may not make it every five years, but they sure as heck make it every seven, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's because you have this driver to get it to happen. Right. Yeah. Mandatory deadlines are (laughs) a way to move things along at least somewhat. And actually uh, the revised toxic substances control act has a lot of deadlines and that has, that has had an effect. It's certainly focused EPA's attention on doing that work under TOSC, although it was sort of a hostile takeover mm-hmm. for the last four years or so. Okay. So you, you spend a decade at EPA doing this work and was the flame retardant work also at EPA? Yeah. Then that started basically, I went to a meeting in Sweden, a mm-hmm. symposium. I think it was the first international meeting on brominated flame retardant. And I was asked to speak about the brominated dioxins in Furans. Mm-hmm. And I mean, by the time that three-day meeting was over, I was just kind of in bell shock because here Pierre Erickson was presenting, there were several things. The Swedes were presenting the data of the high levels of these chemicals in breast milk. Mm-hmm. And then Pierre Erickson, who's also Swedish, was presenting data on the developmental neurotoxicity of these chemicals. And there were some other talks, that were, but, but it was like, oh my God, we don't know anything about these. They are being produced in large volumes. And, you know, was there cancer data on them at that point? I don't, don't think there really was, but mm-hmm. there was the clear developmental toxicity data and, some, uh, and um, you know, both the neurotoxicity and some other effects. And there was the, the fact that they were uh, enzyme inducers so that they were impacting the liver and other tissues. And there was just a wealth of growing information about them. And EPA was doing nothing. So I kind of, being a a good troublemaker, (laughs) (laughs) I came back and kind of started raising consciousness about it. One Mm -hmm. of the first things I did was not only get going doing some work on on the chemicals in my lab, especially the uh, PBDEs, which were were the brominate of flame retardants that people were very concerned about. But I went up to the office of, of water and the office of toxics. And I started saying, hey, guys, you got to think about these chemicals. These are really bad actors. You know, we need to be doing something. So I actually wrote a paper with one of my graduate students in 2004. And a lot of it was really based upon everything I had learned at that meeting two and a half years earlier, mm-hmm. um, which I called it BFRs, cause for concern, question mark. Mm-hmm. And I keep threatening to write a paper that says BFRs, cause for concern, exclamation point now. <laughs> Right. Because I think that's what that's what we learned. So my lab really was focusing on the brominate of flame retardants from about 2002 until the time I left EPA. Right. And then when I moved to NIEHS and I did establish my own lab, we continued to do some work on some other brominated flame retardants. Right. My last year and a half at EPA, I actually stepped away from my division. Mm-hmm. I was given an opportunity to run a cross-agency program on asbestos, dealing with what was going on in Libby, Montana, which is the site of the country's only Superfund site where you have clear deaths from exposure. And it was because um, there was a mine just outside the town limits that was mining vermiculite. And at times, as much as 50% by weight of vermiculite was asbestos. Uh, Vermiculite is used as a soil additive it's also used in insulation. So that town had gotten dump trucks full of mine tailings that, you know, they used on the school 
ball fields and they used on all the parks and people put in their yards. And you had, um, this is going back now, let's see, 15 years ago, and you already had over 30 people in this town of about 11,000 people who died of mesothelioma. And um, some of them had nothing to do with the mine. They just lived in a town that the mine was near. So I was coordinating the research efforts in ORD, which involved uh, epidemiological investigations, exposure studies, cleanup studies, and, and animal studies as well, in vitro too, in vitro studies as well, with the program office, the Superfund program office that was dealing with this and with the boots on the ground in Region 4 based out of Denver. So that was, again, a whole new endeavor for me and kind of really fun to do something different that I learned a lot about. So I did that. But again, then when I went to NIEHS, I still, you know, you, you never totally give up interest that you had early on. You, so, I mean, I still had a lot of interest in asbestos um, and I still had lots of interest in dioxin-like compounds and so on and PCBs, but at least my own research lab was initially focusing on some of the um, alternative PB, uh, alternative brominated flame recordants uh, that were in high volume use in the U.S. and elsewhere. This is when you went back to the and when you moved back to NTP or at EPA. No, no, this is when I moved back to. Well, I started on the flame retardants in about 2002, but I left EPA uh, in January of 2009 to right. go to NIEHS. How did that? What? How did that come about? You. Well, I've been in the government about 26 or 27 years at that point. And mm -hmm. I was um, I was busy, you know, I had a adjunct appointments at Caroline and Duke and I was, I could have retired soon. I was thinking that I was, and I was busy talking with folks at Duke at the Nicholas School of the Environment about a faculty position, mm -hmm. but I was only going to go part-time. My husband had already retired and mm -hmm. we liked to travel and um, some of our kids were out West and, you know, I mean, none of our kids were around at anywhere near us at the time. And we thought we'd want to have more time, but I didn't want to stop doing science. So I was looking for something at least part-time to do. And um, I got called by the search committee for the directorship for NIEHS. And I said, I'm definitely not interested. And I gave them all these names of people they should contact. And then I started getting calls from people within NIEHS from some of the asking me to consider, to think about it. And I'm kind of thinking about it and thinking. And the Friday night before the application was due on Monday, I finally said to my husband, what do you think? You know, expecting him to say, oh, honey, we've been hoping to slow down a little. And his response was, you have to apply. Your whole career's been building to this. So mm -hmm. I guess that's why we've now been married almost 53. We all have been married 53 years. Anyway, um, yeah. we've been married a long time. As, as I said, we were camp summer sweethearts. But anyway, so um, I spent a crazy weekend writing up this application with my vision statement. You know, the experience was easier to write. The vision was more like an essay. So <laughs> that was harder to write. It, it's the best way to look for a job when you don't know whether you even really want it, you right. know, but to take that shot. You know, and I felt, well, if I don't get anywhere, you know, what did I lose? And uh, when I got called to go for the speed dating interviews, which is kind mm -hmm. of the first round of interviews at NIH, and I went up to Bethesda, and 
you know, I sat around the table with about 20 other people and they all had the fine questions to ask me. And I came away from that thinking, this is pretty interesting. You know, maybe I consider it. Mm -hmm. And about a month later, after that, I got called for a full day interview and I had a wonderful day. I just Mm -hmm. loved it. I almost missed my flight home because um, Elias Zuhuni and I really hit it off and just, you know, had a great conversation. Mm-hmm. I just made the plane and then I left for Greece for three weeks the next day. Nice. And I remember, you know, feeling, <laughs> you know, saying to my husband, well, if they offer it, I might, you know, I'll consider it. You know, it was pretty interesting. We were in, um, name will come to me. It's the beautiful one with the white top. And it's, it's a caldera of an extinct volcano. Anyway, it, it's fabulous. And the yeah. phone rings in the middle of the night. <laughs> I couldn't get to it quick enough to answer it, but I saw that it was a Baltimore or a, a Maryland number. Right. And I said to my husband, I said, hmm, I wonder, could that be? So in the morning I called or later, in the, you know, I called back and they wanted to know who was my, who was in charge of ethics at EPA. Hmm. And I said, uh, does that mean I'm in the running? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, we can't say much, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so, you know, I gave them the name of the, the deputy ethics official at EPA and stuff. And um, I got home from Greece, I think on a Sunday, and I got a call from Sir Huni on Monday. And I'm not a game player. Mm-hmm. You know, he offered me the job and I said yes. Right then on that phone call? Uh, I think I might have, if not, I think I called back immediately. I was pretty, yeah. as I said, I wasn't, I, I liked the interview. I liked the people. I could have kind of accepted the idea of a, of a real challenge. And, um, I have no regrets for, you know. So I was, I wanted to ask you, you kind of made reference to it. What was, when you took the job, what was your vision? Not literally, what did you say in that statement? Although maybe you remember it that way, but what, what was your vision at that time for what you wanted to do there? Well, I think one of the the things that I saw was that I wanted NIEHS to be more than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. I wanted the whole to be, and you know, from some of the, it's when you do an NIH directorship, it's weird. You never go to the Institute that you're going to be in charge of. For part of the interview, you mean, or when? Yeah, you never give a seminar. You never, you know, so, so I mean, I knew NIEHS fairly well, and I knew people there, so I could ask a lot of questions just outside of the interview process. But for example, you know, if they were with some of the other people that they interviewed, they never got to come down and give a seminar at NIEHS. They never, that isn't how NIH does its interviews. But I, I think I was looking at, you know, more integration between the intramural program and NTP and the extramural program. I think I really had gotten increasingly interested in this whole issue of so the totality of exposures that, you know, that we need to get beyond one, one kind of chemical or one kind of exposure at a time. Right. Cumulative. Well, cumulative and the stuff that, you know, hey, it's not just air pollution. You may also have water pollution and you may have right. you have stuff in your food that's bad for you, et cetera. Right. So given that my home had been NTP, I was interested in reestablishing its role. Yeah. But I, but again, I was interested in pulling it together. I was very interested in, in um, epigenetics was kind of just getting 
talked about at that point in time. And I was really interested in that because for years we would say, not even environmentally, but we'd say, well, you know, a skin cell is different than a lung cell is different than a hair cell. They all have the same DNA. And you'd wave your hands about how that happened. And by understanding, by using epigenetics, you could begin to understand how that was coming back. I was very, very aware of the endocrine disruptor issue. Yes. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I had participated in some of that when it all kind of got started. I remember in 1994, I think with the second environmental estrogens meeting that was held, um, I had gone to that and been been pretty interested in all that and that whole area. So I was very interested in that. And I was very, very convinced about what I would later call, you know, a good start lasts a lifetime and Mm -hmm. the importance of what happens early in life in utero or even infantile versus the trajectory of your life. So those are some of the kinds of things I was really, really um, very interested in. I I wanted NIEHS to be seen as a full member of the NIH family. And mm-hmm. I think we were often thought of, again, as this odd duck that's not here. Yeah. So, you know, within six months of my being at NIEHS, I opened the first on-site clinic. You know, I may not be a clinician, but I run a clinical program, (laughs) you know, and I just said, this is something we should have if we're Mm -hmm. part of NIH. And I would say for our first couple of years of the clinic, it mainly was a place where people would come in and you could take measurements um, or get blood or urine or something from them. But at this point in time, you know, by the time I left, we had several clinical studies ongoing, um, Mm. as well as I did some pharmacokinetic study. I did two pharmacokinetic studies myself in the clinic. Oh, human pharmacokinetic studies. That was that was kind of fun. One of the issues that came up or you took on in a, in a major way during your directing of NTP was bisphenol A <laughs> and an attempt to, I don't know if reconcile is exactly the right word, but bring together uh, academic scientists who were raising a lot of concern about bisphenol A and its health effects and uh, some of the federal agency scientists who were uh, more skeptical and maybe uh, relying on older methods or different scientific methods for their conclusions and trying to see if something could be worked through jointly on that. So can you say a little bit about that? Sure. That turned into what's called the clarity study. And I can't tell you all what all those letters meant, but what, what it was, was we spent about $35, $36 million between the uh, NTP program, which was joint between um, my NTP folks and NCTR to actually, which is part of uh, FDA, to actually mm-hmm. run what the kind of work that th- they do, which is guideline studies. Right. We made it uh, a larger, more, more different dose levels were used. We did some studies which involved starting with in utero exposure, not just instead of just adult exposure. Mm -hmm. And we just did it in rats rather than rats and mice, which in retrospect, I think might not have been the right decision. Uh, We also used the NCTR rat, which had never been studied with BPA before. We established a a extramural grants program, which was done on, on a competitive basis. And the exciting thing was that animals that were grown in the same NTP and exposed by by the same um, NTP FDA consortium in in Arkansas 
some of the animals were kept for the guideline studies and some of the animals or parts of the animals were sent to the grantees to look at the kind of what I would say is 21st century methods instead of 20th century methods. Right. I think the question we were trying to ask is, are the guideline studies asking the appropriate questions that needed to be asked? Initially, I think there was um, a steering committee established between NIEHS, NTP, NCTR, FDA's Center for Food and Safety mm-hmm. and Additives, the CIFSAN group, and the grantees uh, that met. And we brought the grantees together at least once a year to report on what they were finding and so on. Let's say that in about 2017, when the data was all coming in, FDA refused to abide by what they had promised. They were convinced that there were no effects that they saw with BPA. It was very frustrating. Obviously, the grantees were very frustrated. So we put all all the data from all the grantees, as well as from the NCTR animals, were all put into this centralized database system so that anyone could look at all the data. And um, FDA, their conclusions were that there were no low-dose effects of BPA that were meaningful, despite the fact that what we saw, and by we, I mean some of the NTP scientists, was that there were significant things happening at very low doses, but the same, say, pathological endpoint was not noticeable at higher doses. So NCTR basically, I mean, actually now they have actually a policy statement out, not NCTR, but FDA, that they don't believe in non-monotonic dose response curves, and they don't believe in low-dose effects, basically, um, which I don't know how they deal with the fact that you have non-monotonic dose response curves for vitamins or for essential elements. Right. You know, this is not a novel concept. Anyhow, so what we agreed to do is John Booker, basically, who had planned to retire, has stayed on till he can get this all completed. And I think, I think almost all the grantee studies have now been published. And he is basically putting together kind of a, this is what they found and this is what you know, for this, so if you're talking about cardiovascular, this is what the FDA said, this is the grantees data, and doing that for each of the systems. Um, And that will be the official NTP report. I am hopeful, I mean, I'm no longer in charge, (laughs) but I am hopeful that John is then going to write a paper, which I believe, looking at the grantee data and the NCTR data, that there are significant things happening at very low doses. There's evidence for using transcriptional changes that you can see uh, related to carcinogenesis. There's data on several developmental endpoints that you can see. There's data on neurotoxic endpoints, clearly data on some endocrine-mediated responses that are happening at much lower levels that you can see by these what I would say is 21st century techniques that you don't see when you're looking just when you're looking for a pathological change or over body weight change or something like that. It's interesting for each of these chemicals or classes of chemicals we've talked about, there's a moment where publicly they're getting a lot of attention. And then, you know, that sort of ebbs and flows or rises and falls, but the science, you know, continues over 
you know, sometimes decades, PCBs and dioxins and, and now bisphenol A. So this is still a very much a live issue. And and the bisphenols are still out in our products and in, in us. So it it's something that I think it's it is important to address both science-wise and policy-wise. You know, that this example gets to another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is this tension, I'll just say, this ongoing tension between a set of scientists, whether they're at federal agencies or labs or what have you, that are solely recognizing uh, or using, relying on using what you've called 20th, 20th century methods of, of chemical assessment and toxicology, and then a 21st century set of science practices. And, and those, you know, that relates to a lot of things that I think have come up over the time you've been doing this work, the low dose exposure, non-monotonic doses, which you can explain a little bit about what that is, um, the timing of exposure, uh, you know, windows of vulnerability, all these, and endocrine disrupting chemicals, those are all things that have, I think the understanding has just, you know, grown over the last, we'll say 20 years, 30 years, some of them, but there's a real lag for some reason in, and, and, a, and a real difference in how how people are willing or ready to use those, um, those approaches. And, you know, I, some of that, I mean, I, this might be cynical. I think chemical industry is standing in the way of recognition and adoption of some of those things and methods, because it's to their disadvantage. If the more there's a focus on early life impacts or windows of vulnerability or actual problems from bisphenols or endocrine disruptors, generally that hurts their bottom line. But then if you, even if you set that aside, there's you know quite a range within federal agencies, for example, on how these things are treated. So I, can you just say a little bit about that? Because I think that's a really fundamental point that runs across a whole lot of chemical uh, policies over both science and regulation of chemicals. The different federal agencies and even different programs within the different federal agencies have to abide by different legislation. So within EPA, the requirements for for a chemical that's, say, a hazardous air pollutant and its level of acceptable risk may be very different than if it's at a Superfund site and very different than if it's in drinking water. You know, so I think that's, and very difficult, if that different is in consumers' products. In, in much of FDA, uh, at least in the drug-related part and in the device-related part, you have to prove it's safe before it can go on the market. Unfortunately, in EPA, um, you really don't have to prove safety. It's after the fact when somebody says, oh, my goodness, we've got a problem here, and then you've got to pull back from something. And I think, unfortunately, industry has deep pockets, and it's to their advantage often to keep to keep production up of a chemical even if they know that eventually it's going to be, they're going to have to ban it because they're making so much money while they do it. Now that sounds cynical, but I think that that's the reality of how things function. I, I'll never forget with the flame retardants. Um, I remember talking to one of the scientists who was one of the key person who came to toxicology meetings and epidemiology meetings and stuff about the PBEs. And he said to me, Oh, we don't want to, use a chemical that's bad, you know, and if the data ends up showing that this chemical is really a problem, of course, we'll stop using it. And in, um, by the end of 2004, 
the, the sole manufacturers of the PVDEs, of, of the Penta-PDE, which was essentially only made in North America, never made or used much in Europe, had agreed that they would stop making it by the end of 2004. They had a substitute that they thought would be, or they believe would not cause any harm. So it wasn't that they believed the data that the Penta was a problem. It was that they could now get rid of it and substitute something else. Right. And we see that kind of thing again and again happening. I would say that the chemical that they put in a substitute is not free of adverse health effects. In fact, there's a multitude of effects. And we have this whole unfortunate habit of, of unfortunate substitution or more descriptively whack-a-mole chemical conveyor belt. And I think that's a real problem that we have to deal with. But I do think some of the differences between programs within an agency and between agencies have to do with what their regulations actually say and the level of proof that's required and maybe the level of protection that's required. So I've always been very frustrated with some of the uh, consumer products um, and EPAs for chemicals and commerce, I should say, you know, where kind of as well, you, you're protecting at more at the 50% level. If you're dealing with the Clean Air Act, you're protecting at the 99% level. So the, right. these can have huge differences um, in, you know, in how you look at things. Right. I want to ask you about one other NIHS NTP related thing, which is the report on carcinogens. Thing that reminded me as you were talking about companies wanting to maintain the use of chemicals for a long, as long as possible, even when they know there's a problem. And I'm thinking about the, the dispute over the report on carcinogens, saying that finding that formaldehyde was a known human carcinogen and styrene, I think, a probable human carcinogen. And there was a reasonably anticipated, reasonably anticipated, right? And uh, there's a congressional response, and they, I think, a chemical industry fed congressional response and an NAS panel to review those findings. And ultimately the report on carcinogens was completely validated uh, for the original findings, but it, you know, it's, it was a good example of how industry's able to push back and delay things or cast aspersions on well-done science when they don't like the results because of political power. So can you say a little bit about what the report on carcinogens is and why it's important? Yeah. Well, the report on carcinogens is legislatively mandated which is to list all chemicals that are known to be human carcinogens or recently anticipated to be human carcinogens. I believe there's a total now of about approximately 250 chemicals that have been evaluated on that list. About 80 of them are known human carcinogens and the others are reasonably anticipated. To be listed as a known human carcinogen, there has to be a strong epidemiology data, strong animal data, and strong mechanistic data. Something can also be limited, listed as known if there's very strong animal and very strong mechanistic data and limited human data. Mm -hmm. Reasonably anticipated is a, you have a little less information than to be known, mm -hmm. you know, but they are uh, authorita authoritative reviews of the literature focusing on conducting a hazard assessment, right. of, which is basically the potential for chemical to cause effects. Usually in the report on carcinogens, there's also some information about exposure, you know, who's exposed, how much are they exposed and that kind of thing. But it, it is not a formal, it never goes into a formal quantitative risk assessment. 
Right. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't directly lead to any regulation. There's nothing, there's no regulation tied or is there, is that not right? Yeah. So OSHA, if a chemical is listed in the report on carcinogens, it has to be listed by, in the material safety data sheets. Okay. That OSHA uses. Right. And under the office of water of EPA, I think under the clean water act, there is a specific requirement that if something is listed in in the report on carcinogens, it has to be regulated in in that part of the Clean Water Act. And I don't at this point remember exactly what it is. I see. But there is there and California under Prop sixty five right. uses the report oh, on yes. carcinogens. Yes, you're as right. Well. I don't I want I should have I forgot. <laughs> yes, right. It's an authoritative uh, body for um for listing a chemical under prop prop sixty five. Right. The last thing related to your work at NTP I wanted to ask you about is the the big current one, PFOS. This is a very big, I mean, I th- it's rightly being called by just about everybody the PFOS crisis, uh, because as we said at the outset of the conversation, you know, there's many PFOS. We don't even know how many or, you know, which ones or how we're being exposed or where we're being exposed. And they're um, clear, clear science indicating that they cause adverse health effects. You've done a lot of work on that, and there was an attempt to prevent you from saying what you truly thought scientifically about PFOS while you were still at NTP, and then you left NTP, and I I think uh, maybe felt able to say more than you had when you were in the government. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, it's not only NTP. It's NIEHS, and the what I would say was censoring was not only for PFAS, it was for almost anything I said or mm-hmm. did. And and I do believe that was politically driven. Um, yeah. And when I got the attacks from certain congressional sources, they were verbatim, the, mm-hmm. well, word for word of attacks that came, for example, from the chemical industry. Right. I mean, they didn't even change a word in the text other than the signature. Right. And, and, you know, kind of thing. But it was pretty unpleasant. PFAS were, were just one of the things. Um, NTP started PFAS, studying PFAS actually before I got there. I mean, in 2008, they began to design the long term study with PFOA, as well as uh, short term, 28 day studies with uh, PFOA plus six other PFAS mm-hmm. to look for kind of short term effects that they would see. I should say that I made what turns out to have been kind of a sad decision. But in 1989, I published three papers when I was at NTP and IEHS the first time on the toxicity of PFDA, which has mm. 10 carbons. PFOA has eight carbons. Right. And um, I, I, we knew at that about that point in time, data was starting to get out that these chemicals were affecting the thyroid and they were affecting the liver. And I said, oh my God, I wonder if these are dioxin-like chemicals. So I ran a bunch of studies and the answer was no, they're not like dioxin. So I stopped studying them. Okay, uh, go ahead, <laughs> 20, 25 years and um, the interest came back. Yeah. So, you know, we now know and I believe that these chemicals are actually worse than dioxin because these are incredibly, in many ways, desirable industrial products. They um, Industry is making billions a year on them. 
And while there are 209 dibenzodioxins and dibenzofurans, uh, there are now over 9,200 PFAS. We have good data, I would say, on a very small number of these PFAS. We have mm-hmm. some good good epidemiology on PFOA. We have some data on PFOS. We have some data on a couple more, but for the vast majority, we have next to nothing. Mm-hmm. The little bit of data we have um, on the substitutes, which are usually have fewer, they all have the same carbon-fluorine bonds, which are almost impossible to break. They yeah. don't occur in nature, and they're almost impossible to break. The the few that we do have some data on, they do exactly what the traditional ones do. You may have to administer more of them, mm-hmm. but the level that actually are associated with effects when you measure what's in the body turn out to be sometimes even lower than the PFOA or PFOS. So I have concerns about this entire class First, driven by the fact that they are so environmentally persistent. Right. Then, then by the fact is they don't stay put. They are highly mobile. So we now know that the Arctic is totally contaminated with these and our Arctic creatures and our indigenous peoples of the far north, our right. traditional hunters and fishers. They, many of them are bioaccumulative. And you will hear people talk about, well, these substitutes have a short half-life. And when we actually have data on that half-life, and again, the data is limited, but what we have is somehow I don't consider six months a very short human half-life. It's certainly shorter than two years or four years or 10 years, but it's still not a short half-life. So there is opportunity for some bioaccumulation. Plus, if these never leave the environment, they're going to build up in the environment and eventually potentially reach hazardous levels. Uh, that can cause effects. And the more we study them, uh, they do remind me of dioxin in the fact that these are not just affecting one tissue of one sex of one species at one point in their lifetime. Right. These chemicals are, you know, developmentally toxic. They're toxic to the infantile period. They're toxic to adults. They alter, say, mammary gland development during pregnancy. Yep. In utero also, but they often not an effect, appear to affect like ability to lactate well. Um, and the couple that we have data on is they are carcinogenic in experimental animals. And at least for PFOA, there is good data from a very large study known as the C8 study, which was in the Ohio River Valley um, between West Virginia and Ohio, um, where a DuPont plant uh, contaminated the drinking water system of tens of thousands of people. And there are increases in kidney and testicular tan- cancer, um, among, among some other, other very adverse health effects. Right. And there's less data, but on some of the other PFAS also for carcinogenesis in people. Um, but, you know, we're never going to be able to test all of these chemicals. And we have to take, um, begin to take what I believe would be a class approach. And I had been one of the people who uh, signed a petition in uh, 2015 to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, urging that they recognize um, organohalogen flame retardants as a class. I should say that there are are PFAS, which are organohalogen flame retardants. Um, And 
Consumer Product Safety Commission took this to the academies who opined that they thought a class or a subclass approach was very appropriate to be taken. I was a co-author on a paper that came out this summer, which uh, also proposed a class approach for PFAS. And I just uh, last week, a paper came out written by a scientist from California EPA proposing a class approach to PFAS that are present in consumer products. Mm -hmm. So I think there is beginning to be some groundswell of opinion. The, um, the European Union recently issued what I would say is a very forward-looking chemical strategy. Yes. Effort that came out in October of 2020. And in that, they explicitly uh, call out the need to treat PFAS as a class and dramatically limit it to only essential uses. Right. That European strategy, which they're going to be developing now, I think, over the next several years and implementing, hopefully will really be a touchstone to move U.S. policy on toxics along the same way um, REACH arguably did uh, the EU REACH law or regulation, I guess it's called, has has really laid the groundwork for a lot of the work, certainly at the state level uh, here in the U.S. What what are you, uh, now that you're, um, I don't know if you're actually retired or not, but now that you're oh, no, yes. you are, you're very busy. I'm but yes, I'm very busy. In fact, I think I'm as busy as I was when I was the director. Yes. And I will say that, I mean, I loved being the director of NIEHS and NTP. Yeah. Um, but I really don't miss the administration and management at all. Right. I'm able to spend all my time um, basically with the science now. So I'm continuing. Uh, I still have a laboratory, at least for about another year mm -hmm. um, at NIEHS. I was granted uh, emeritus status by the Intramural Research Program of NIH. My lab is working not only on brominative flame retardants, but working on PFAS right now, uh, which has been very rewarding. Mm -hmm. um, so I have my lab that I'm still doing. Um, I'm collaborating with many other scientists and other groups. And I was recently appointed a, a scholar in residence in the Nicholas School of Environment at Duke. Hmm. So once the pandemic is over, yeah. <laughs> I'll spend, be spending a fair amount of time at Duke where my objective really is to mentor students and um, you know, and younger faculty and stuff like that. So I'm doing a fair amount of mentoring. And I'm also able to speak out and give my opinion of what the science is telling us. And that is very liberating for me. That's great. Just a couple wrap up questions. Well, so just so looking back over that whole, what we just talked about, was there, I mean, was there an alternative path you might've taken coming out of Illinois and grad school that might also have been attracted, attractive to you? Or are there um, are the things, are you happy with the road you took? Or are there other roads you might have taken that you also would have liked to do with your science, your love of science? I have no, I have, I have no regrets. I have to say I loved for the fact that I was a federal employee for over 40 years and I never was, the people that I was responsible for were, were the American people. And this may sound very idealistic, but that's how I feel. Um, I think the other way I might have gone when I finished my graduate training and stuff is I had always thought I'd be an academic. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways I had the best of both worlds yeah. because 
I've been able to have adjunct appointments. I've been able to have students and postdocs in my laboratory. I've been able to mentor people. And I never had to write grants. And I can't, <laughs> that's kind of liberating in a sense. Not that in the government, you have to write lots of reports yeah. um, and, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, I, I, you know, I can't say there weren't bad days because, mm-hmm. of course, there are. But I have a passion for what I did and a passion for what I'm doing now. And I think that's one of the most important things that, you know, younger scientists need to understand that if they don't love what they do, yep. they need to think about turning the wheel and finding something else. Uh, we, t- I think we probably touched on a couple, but um, what are the, your, what are the accomplishments of your, over the time at um, NEHS and EPA are you most proud of or the things you feel like you most contributed and feel good about? I think advancing the science, really opening up the science to uh, newer approaches, to thinking more broadly, to getting basic scientists and more applied scientists to work together. Mm -hmm. I think um, one area I didn't mention, which I think is really important, is the uh, differential vulnerability of the population. Now, that's true whether you're talking about animals or you're talking about people. And in animals, there's been very little attention paid to uh, the fact that if you want a rat that will get breast cancer, I've got the rat for you. If you want a rat that will never get breast cancer, I got the rat for you. And which one represents the human population? And the answer is both. And so I think some of the approaches that start have been developed over the past 10 years or so, which are looking at understanding even the genetic variability of a strength, a species is extremely important. And and what we're seeing in um, the animal models is very similar to what we see using different kinds of human cells, uh, where you see, you know, 100 to 200 or even 300 fold variation in susceptibility, which is largely genetically based. Now, on top of that, you can have variable uh, vulnerability because of other exposures that are ongoing, you know, in our experimental animals, we try to control the conditions, not always as great as we think we are at that, but it clearly in people you can at all. Right. And we have better understandings now that in the differential vulnerability of people, you know, despite age, despite genetics, despite nutrition, despite infectious disease, just with the microbiome as well, you know, we understand that socioeconomic and equity issues play a major role and interact with many other things. So I, I, I learned, and I don't think I 20 years ago would have defined the environment as broadly as I do today, Hmm. but I used to talk about the capital E, not the small E. Right. So chemicals, whether they're uh, agricultural chemicals or pollutants or synthetic chemicals or drugs or nutrients, they're just all chemicals. But in addition to that, you have, you know, your um, lifestyle factors and you have your socioeconomic issues and you have your genetic issues and they all play together to understand the differential response that people have to, to different kinds of exposures. Right. Any regrets or mistakes, things you would do differently, things you. This may sound a little strange, but I spent 19 years at EPA. 
and 16, let's see, I ran my division, experimental tox division, for about uh, 16 of those years. Mm -hmm. 16 years in one job is too long. Mm. You know, you know, the first 10 years are great. And then after that, things that you used to find challenging, you now look at as just a pain in the neck. Right. Um, and so, you know, I did spend a year being the head of all the health divisions on an acting role. And I did not like that because it was incredibly bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. And then I spent this wonderful year running the human studies division where I learned about clinical trials and epidemiology. So uh, it was a, tr a terrific learning experience for me. Right. Um, and, and I think it was okay for the division. And then I ended up my career at EPA running this cross-agency effort where I was bringing together, you know, the regulators and the boots on the ground folks and the researchers to really try to understand what was going on in this town in northern Montana. So, you know, but but 16 years at in one division, I mean, not that it was always the same because the division, you know, it grew and it had different people. but um, I once had a uh, a mentor uh, when I was at NIHS the first time, actually, who said that you should change jobs every five years. Mm. And I'd never heard that before. And I thought that was crazy. And um, in retrospect, I'm not sure every five years is the, the perfect, you know, the number yeah. of years I would, yeah. but I certainly think every 10. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the drivers that made me decide to retire when I did, because it was kind of, right. At the time where I'd been doing the job for 10 and a half years, and it was like, you know, I think I'm ready to do something else. Yeah. Okay. Last question. When you, I mean, you're, you're still having a lot of interaction with young scientists and in, in a bunch of different ways. So when you're talking to scientists or somebody studying in college uh, about environmental health or they express an interest in environmental health what do you tell them what do you tell them about the importance of environmental health and the possibility of making a difference as a scientist in this work nothing is just genetics and nothing is just the environment you know some things may be more towards one end of the spectrum than the other but there's interaction going on and at least what we're seeing, although the genome was sequenced over 20 years ago, we haven't seen the benefits from that that I think we initially thought. And I think until we start combining that understanding with the exposome, you know, the environmental exposures, I think that is where we're going to find tremendous payoff down, you know, as we go forward. And you would encourage people to, you, you would encourage at least some of your scientists, students to pursue this field? Oh, absolutely. I think there are so many things that remain to be discovered and um, in, in the basic sense. And then there are, there, there are lots of things that we need to start to apply. Linda, thank you. Or excuse me, Dr. Birnbaum, thank you very much for uh, speaking, uh, coming on the Toxic Avengers podcast. And it was great talking with you today. Great talking with you too. Stay safe and sane. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends. 
and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.